Hello and welcome to another episode of Life in the Dark, a podcast dedicated to the golden age of radio and Hollywood's classic era. This podcast is part of the Nomad in the Middle network. More information can be found at nomadinthemiddle.com. Rewind brings you Facebook of Gregory Hood. Tonight, the Petrie family, the family that took time to bring you into the story of the Derringer Society. Another exciting story from the casebook of Gregory Hood. And right now, I'd like to talk about those few minutes you have while you're waiting for dinner every evening. That's the perfect time for a glass of Petri California Sherry. It's the best beginning a good meal ever had. You really feel like you're enjoying the good things of life when you take time for a glass of Petri Sherry. Hold that glass of Sherry to the light. Look at it. It's a beautiful dark amber. Yes, and Petri Sherry is clear and fragrant, the way a good wine should be. Now taste it. Ah, you've got something. That Petri Sherry has a real heart-of-the-grape flavor. And look, if you like your sherry dry, you know, not sweet, Petri makes a fine dry sherry. It's called Petri Pale Dry. And if you don't know yet which you prefer, the regular sherry or the dry, why not try both? Don't buy one, buy two. But just be sure you always buy Petri. Well, it's Monday night in San Francisco, and we have a date with Gregory Hood and his friend and attorney, Sanderson Taylor. Tonight's rendezvous is at that delectable backwater, the Happy Valley Room at the famous Palace Hotel. Let's keep our date, shall we? Harry Bartell, how are you? Hello, Gregory. Evening, Mr. Taylor. Good evening, Harry. We just ordered a glass of sherry. You'll join us, of course. Thanks, Greg. Be very nice. Uh, make that three sherries, Carl. Yes, Mr. Hoot. Well, gentlemen, which stories have you selected from the casebook for tonight's episode? A quite remarkable case that we filed under the heading of the Derringer Society. Well, it sounds exciting, but uh, what is the Derringer Society? Well, surely you remember those wonderful early semi-scientific yarns about Dr. Derringer, don't you? Well, yes, I do, Greg, now that you mention it. Uh, sort of Jules Verne stories, weren't they? Yes, and if you reread them, Harry, you'll realize that they predict just about everything from rockets to the atomic bomb. You're both members of the Derringer Society, I take it. Oh, certainly. In fact, Gregory is the president. Greg, I'm always learning something new about you. Oh, I've been a Derringer fan for a great many years, Harry, so it was only natural that I rounded up a few old cronies here who were equally interested and formed a society. We meet from time to time in a private room in Solaris, uh, uh, in Maiden Lane. On the particular occasion I'm talking about, the evening started out very quietly with an excellent dinner, fine wine, and lots of good talk about the famous Dr. Derringer. And then I rose to introduce the guest of us. Fellow members of the Derringer Society, you will already have noticed that we have violated our long-standing stag rule. We have a lady among us. Oh, shame! No, 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 George. We've broken the precedent for a very particular reason. I don't have to remind any of you that the fabulous Dr. Derringer, that great spade-bearded scientific giant, was especially devoted to the tricks played by time. Well, our guest tonight is Miss Julia Hayes. She claims to perform exactly the sort of time travel prophecy that the great Derringer foretold. 
Miss Hayes, gentlemen, claims to be able to predict future events. Dr. Barton, our psychiatrist member, has been examining Miss Hayes today, and I shall ask him to introduce her. Thank you, Mr. President. Fellow members, I must preface my remarks by stating that if I appear to speak of our guest in a slightly clinical manner, I do so with her full permission. Am I right, Miss Hayes? Yes, Dr. Barton, you may say anything you wish. Thank you, Miss Hayes. Gentlemen, this afternoon I spent some two hours examining our guest. And by all known psychological tests, she is simply normal. Perhaps a trifle below average mentality. But her record has already established the fact that she can often predict future events with surprising accuracy, quite above the laws of chance. And now, gentlemen, Miss Hayes will be quite willing to answer any question. Uh, yes, uh, Sandy Taylor, I think yours was the first hand. Uh, Miss Hayes, may I ask you any outstanding events that you predicted in the past? On May the 4th, 1937, I predicted that two days later the German airship Hindenburg would be destroyed. I predicted the death of both Mussolini and his son-in-law, Canciano. I was right as to both date and time. I am seldom wrong. Miss Hayes, how do you explain your unusual ability? I cannot explain it. It is beyond my understanding. It is a gift. When I let my mind go blank, I can see into the future. Well, Miss Hayes, can you tell me what horse is going to win the second race at Arlington tomorrow? <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Chester. Mr. Hayes is our guest. Oh, sorry, Hood. I beg your pardon, Miss Hayes. I was just saying <coughs> to see. Now, let me ask you a serious question. Are you able to see into the future at will? Yes. If I make my mind a blank, I can usually see into the immediate future. Would you consider making a prediction for us now? I will try. I can promise nothing, but I will try. Monday. Monday. It is Monday at age 15. I see the future, but not far ahead. This same night, three hours from now, at 11.15 tonight, I see a small man, a bald man with glasses. His name is Chester. Look, Miss Hayes, the joke's a joke. Quiet, quiet, Mr. Chester. Don't spoil it. She's still talking. Tonight, Mr. Chester, at exactly 11.15, you will be murdered. I think that was one of the most emotional meetings we've ever had at the Derringer Society. <laughs> it certainly broke up in a hurry when she predicted the murder of Chester. Yes. What do you make of that woman, Gregory? Well, it's hard to say. Time travel into the future is all very well in the Derringer stories. Otherwise, I don't care for it too much. Life's complicated enough in a straight line these days. Come on, Sandy Taylor, wait for me! Alfred Chester. He's chasing us on the double. He really must be scared. Well, I'm glad I caught you fellas before you left. What's wrong, Mr. Chester? Are you taking that prediction seriously? Well, it sounded to me more like a threat than a prediction. My reason tells me it's foolish to take the thing seriously, and yet... After all, I, I did make that stupid remark about the horse races. She's a weird woman. She may have some, some odd powers that we know nothing about. 
What do you fellows think I ought to do? Get the police, perhaps? No, I think it'd be a little hard to convince them that you were in danger. Yes. It's a quarter of 11 now. Uh, would you like me to come home with you until after her 11.15 deadline has passed? Oh, no, no, Hood. I won't bother you. I'm probably being extremely stupid. Well, thanks for this little talk. I feel a lot better. Good night. Good night, Mr. Chester. Good night. Really is frightened, isn't he, Gregory? Badly. Ah, oh, well, Sandy, I don't think we need to take the business very seriously. <laughs> of course not. Just the same, I have a feeling that Mr. Alfred Chester may not sleep too easily tonight. Yes, dear, it's me. Are you in bed? Yes, I've been reading. How was the meeting? Uh, I'll hang up my things and come and tell you about it. It was rather a peculiar evening. There was a woman there who claimed to be able to see into the future. Oh, what rubbish. I know, but the, the funny thing was she... Oh, well, but that's nonsense. Uh, what's the time, Alice? Uh, it's exactly 11.15. <sighs> 11.15, then I'm safe. I need... <laughs> morning to you, Stan. Hello, Lieutenant Silver. Good morning. What brings you to my office this early in the morning, Stan? Could we interest you in a small Ming vase for Mrs. Silver? Oh, we have a nice line in Inca headdresses. You'd look rather fetching in one. Greg, I'm here on business. You saw Alfred Chester last night, didn't you? Sure, we both did. Why? Well, late last night, he was murdered. He was... What time, Stan? His wife says it was exactly 11.15. Great God! Then the prediction came true. What prediction are you talking about, Mr. Taylor? Chester attended a meeting of the Derringer Society last night. A woman by the name of Julia Hayes went into a sort of trance and predicted Chester would be murdered at exactly 11.15. Then that's a woman I've got to talk to. We'll all go and talk to her, Stan, but before we do, there's one thing I'd like to know. How was the murder committed? Chester was stabbed from behind by a medium-sized, right-handed person. No fingerprints, no clue. Who are you calling, Gregory? Barton. He can tell us where Julia Hayes can be found. Uh, get me Dr. Barton's office, please. Yes, Mr. Hood. Dr. Barton? I know him. He's a psychiatrist, isn't he? That's the man. He brought Julia Hayes to our meeting last night. Here's Dr. Barton, Mr. Hood. Oh, thanks. Dr. Barton? Yes? This is Gregory Hood. Oh, yes, Greg. Can you tell me where I can get in touch with Julia Hayes? Well, she's here in my office now. And I found out something very interesting about her, Gregory. So have I, Barton. Please keep her there until we arrive. We're leaving right away. I've been examining Miss Hayes again this morning, gentlemen, and I've uncovered a very interesting fact. Miss Hayes was left-handed in her childhood, but she's been forcibly trained into right-handedness since. It's a situation that is often uh, has uh, unpredictable psychological results, though I'll confess, never precisely like hers. She is extraordinary, isn't she, Barton? Lieutenant Silvers will tell you just how extraordinary. Dr. Barton, Alfred Chester was murdered last night. Murdered by a right-handed person. What? And her prediction came true to the exact minute he died at 11.15. He did? I... I... I don't know what to say. Uh, one thing I can assure you, gentlemen. 
Miss Hayes did not commit the crime herself. How do you know? Because I brought her back here after the meeting last night. I was working with her until 12.30. Where's Miss Hayes now? Uh, in the other room. Uh, you want to talk to her? Yes, Dr. Barton, I certainly do. I'll call her in. Uh, come in, please, Miss Hayes. Yes, Doctor. These uh, gentlemen want to ask you a few questions. What questions? I understand you predicted the murder of Mr. Alfred Chester last night. Yes. It happened, of course. Yes. I knew it would. How do you account for the fact that you predicted it three hours before it happened? I cannot account for it. It is a gift that I cannot explain. I can see things in the immediate future. I can tell you what is to happen today before the day is out. I can tell you... Her mind is blanking out again. What can you tell us, Miss Hayes? I see a large man, a red-faced man. His name is Felton. That's George Felton, another member of the Derringer Society. What do you see, Miss Hayes? He will die tonight. He, too, will be murdered. The heck he will. This is one murder that isn't going to take place. George Felton speaking. This is Lieutenant Silvers again, Mr. Felton. Silvers, why don't you leave me alone? I don't want any police protection, and I won't have any. But, Mr. Felton, I told you that Alfred Chester was murdered last night, right after he'd been threatened by this woman. His death was a coincidence, Silvers. It was probably a prowler. But I'm not easily scared, and I don't believe in supernatural powers, even though I am a member of the Derringer Society. I wish you'd let me come over, Mr. Felton. We don't like to take any chances. Now, look here, Silvers. It's nearly midnight. My wife and I are going to bed. Don't you worry about us. If anyone murders me during the night, I'll get in touch with you first thing in the morning. Who was that, darling? Oh, Lieutenant Silvers again. Still worrying about that threat on your life. Yes, that's the fifth time he's called me today. Darling, he must take it seriously, even if you don't. Mm. Uh, Don't you think... Oh, now, don't worry your pretty head about it, Cynthia. You run along to bed, dear. I'll lock up. I suppose you know best, George. Mm. Don't be long. No. Hmm. What's that? I heard something. Gregory, I blame myself for Mr. Felton's murder last oh, night. Oh, you did your best, Stan? Yes, Lieutenant. After all, you, you tried to force him to take protection, but he wouldn't hear of it. I know, but I do blame myself. Well, let's see what Julie Hayes has to say about this one. He's waiting outside. Come in, please, Miss Hayes. Very well, Lieutenant. Now, Miss Hayes, I want to know how you knew this latest murder was going to take place. I cannot tell you how I knew. It is just that when my mind is a blank, I have the ability to see into the future. Now, look, Miss Hayes, I'm a plain, straightforward police officer. One coincidence I can take. But not two. And I can't write on a police report that you knew about the murder because you can see into the future, you know. Why not tell me the truth? I am telling the truth. Oh, Gregory. See if you can get anything out of her. Miss Hayes. What is it? I understand about your being able to travel into the future, but surely you must be able to remember more about what you saw when you had that vision. Try and think back, will you? Think back? Back? No, I can only see forward. Forward. Scott, her mind's banking out again. 
I see another death in the immediate future. Sudden death. The man is tall and dark. His name is Hood. Gregory Hood. You'll hear the rest of Gregory Hood's story in just a second, so I'll tell you quickly about a wine I know you'll like. That wine is Petri California Muscatel. Petri Muscatel is really marvelous. In fact, I'm willing to bet you like everything about it. Petri Muscatel is good just to look at, the color of sheer gold. And say, if you've ever tasted plump, luscious Muscat grapes at their sun-ripened best, well, then you know what to expect when you taste Petri Muscatel. Petri Muscatel brings you that same wonderful Muscat flavor. And you'll like Petri Muscatel after dinner, by itself, or served with fruit, for instance, peaches, or with cake. Just be sure it's Petri. Petri Muscatel, because Petri wine is always good wine. Well, Gregory, so yours was the third murder to be predicted. Considering the first two had taken place according to schedule, you must have felt a little nervous. For the first 24 hours, I was a trifle sensitive to sudden sounds, Harry. But when 48 hours had passed without anything happening, I began to feel rather let down. Let down? You should have thought you'd have been grateful. <laughs> Gregory has an ingrained sense of melodrama, Harry. I think he felt cheated because the spotlight was on him and he didn't have a scene to play. Exactly, Sandy. As my old father used to say, if you're fortunate enough to hit the headlines, for heaven's sake, make the most of it. But how could I? The other two killings had followed right on the heels of the prophecies. Now, mine had been predicted and nothing happened at all. It was rather humiliating. Well, that's one way of looking at it. In any case, I'm sure you didn't just sit down and wait for someone to try to kill you. Oh, no, no, Harry. As soon as Julia Hayes uttered her dire threat, Lieutenant Silvers and I went into action. We questioned everyone and checked alibis till we were as black in the face as a couple of end men. But after three days of this, we had progressed exactly nowhere. On the night of the fourth day, I remember, Sandy and I sat in my apartment discussing the whole business. Gregory? While you and Lieutenant Silvers have been doing the legwork, I've been doing some serious thinking. Splendid, Sandy. What conclusions did you arrive at? I think there's only one answer to this case. And that answer is? Dr. Barton's a psychiatrist. Julia Hayes is slightly subnormal. I wouldn't mind giving you odds that he hypnotized her into performing the two murders. She'd be an easy hypnotic victim. I thought of that possibility. Have you figured out his motive? No, but I'll skip that for the moment. One thing we do know. He had the opportunity. He was the only person who was alone with the woman for any length of time between her arrival in San Francisco and her first prophecy at our meeting. Very true. And I think I could provide your missing motive, Sandy. We've checked on Dr. Barton thoroughly. The wife of George Felton, the second man murdered, was a patient of Barton's. She was also a beautiful woman, no doubt is now a very rich one. I've gleaned rumors that her relationship with Barton was a little more uh, cozy than that which usually exists between doctor and patient. In that case, how would you account for the first murder, the stabbing of Alfred Chester? Well, that could have been a blind, to establish a pattern and conceal the motive. Well, if that were the case, your death would be necessary also. True, true. Darn it, Sandy, this is all supposition. We happen to real lead to follow. There's one thing I will settle, though. Who are you calling? Dr. Howell is staying at the Fairmont. He's probably the greatest psychiatrist in the country. Uh, Dr. Eustace Howell, please. Well, what can he settle? Whether Julia Hayes could have been hypnotized into committing murder. Uh, Dr. Howell? This is Gregory Hood. I'm fine, thanks. Yes, I'd like to. Uh, in the meanwhile, do you mind if I pick your brains? Yes. Yes, here's my problem. Is it possible to hypnotize an individual to commit a criminal act against his will? Thanks, thanks. I thought so. I'm much obliged to you. I'll call you in a day or two. 
Goodbye. Can't be done, huh? No. He says the answer is an unqualified no. Well, I'm going to accelerate my own murder. Tell me what flowers you like first. I'm very fond of Transvaal daisies, Sandy, but don't worry about my funeral left. Yes. Uh, Lieutenant Silvers, please. Who can play at this game, Sandy? Oh, Stan? This is Greg Hood. No, no, no more leads, but I have got a brainwave. Pick up Julia Hayes and bring her up to the apartment as soon as you can. Yes, we'll be waiting for you. any more questions, Mr. Hood. But, Miss Hayes, you predicted that I would be murdered in this apartment. Doesn't this setting ring a responsive chord in your memory? No. No, it does not. Your other prophecies came true. What happened to this one? I do not know. I cannot explain it. Perhaps you've lost your mysterious power, Miss Hayes. Oh, perhaps you never had it. Perhaps you made the whole thing up. Why not admit you're a murderess who poses as a prophet? I am no murderess. I can see the future, or I could... Something has happened to me. You never could see the future, and you never will. But I'll tell you your future, Miss Hayes, if you don't tell us the truth. You'll end up in the gas chamber, and I don't have to be a clairvoyant to know that. Stop talking like that. Leave me alone. I won't stay here. Come back. No, no, Stan. Let her go. I'll tell her, though, Greg. Good idea. She's upset. She might show her hand. I'll be back later. Well, there's still no nearer the solution, Gregory. I don't know. I swear there's still hypnotism in it somewhere. I have a hunch that Julia Hayes isn't conscious of it. That alibi of hers for the first killing might be a true one at that. Hello? Gregory, this is uh, Dr. Barton. Yes, Barton? I, uh, I have rather a serious confession to make to you. I lied to the police. About what? In saying that Julia Hayes was with me at the time of the first murder. She wasn't. Why did you lie? Well, the woman seems such a unique psychiatric study. I wanted to complete my examination before the police nabbed her. Now, I've finished my research with her. You can tell the police they can pick her up. Tell them yourself, Barton, and I wish you the worst of luck in explaining it to them. There's a man that danced at his father's wedding. What did he say, Gregor? He dynamited Julia Hayes' alibi for the first murder. But in doing so, I'm pretty certain he's put the finger on himself. Dr. Howell, please. Andy, I think we're on the right track at last. I certainly hope so. Dr. Howell, this is Greg Hood again. I want just one more piece of information, please. Can a post-hypnotic suggestion include persuading the patient that he was never hypnotized at all? It can? Thank you, Doctor. I'm immensely obliged to you. There's our answer, Sandy. When Barton demolished the woman's alibi, he also demolished his own. Then he did hypnotize Sure. Then he planted the apparent prophecies in her mind. After she'd made them public, he committed the murders himself. I get it. And he thought that when he scuttled Julia Hayes' alibi, we'd think she'd try to make her own predictions come true. That's it, Sandy. Fortunately for us, he's outsmarted himself and walked into his own trap. We've got him. Who's that? Is that you, Stan? What the... What? Who turned off the light? Oh, no, you don't. Gregory! Gregory, where are you? What's happening? Trying to get at the light switch. Look out, Sandy. He's got a knife. Strike a match. Okay, Gregory. Hey, Gregory. Why are the lights off? What's going on? Watch out, Stan. The killer's here. He's got a knife. She's got a knife. It's Julia Hayes. She got away from me, but I trailed her back here. But it can't be. Here's the light switch. It is Julia Hayes, Gregory. We've got your cold, Miss Hayes. Knife's in your hand at all. Well, what have you got to say for yourself? I'm sorry I did not kill you, Mr. Hood. Well, that's very friendly of you, Miss Hayes, but I, I'm completely confused. Well, so am I, Gregory. You just finished proving to me that she couldn't be the killer. Well, I, I don't know what more evidence you want, Greg. The knife's in her hand, and she admits she wished she'd killed you. Yes, I admit it. You all made fun of me. You did not believe in my gift. 
If you had died, then all my predictions would have come true. But I am no murderess. Of course you aren't, Miss Hayes. What are you talking about, Gregory? But don't you see? She's holding the knife in her left hand. There's the answer. Come on, Lieutenant. Let's go over and see Dr. Barton as fast as the squad car can get us there. Well, this is all very dramatic. A police inspector, an amateur detective, and his attorney stand in my home and accuse me of murder. Is this some form of practical joke? If you think it is, you must have a very warped sense of humor. I don't think the judge will find it funny, Dr. Barton. And I know that your attorney won't. But this is ridiculous. You're suggesting that I hypnotized Julia Hayes into making murder prophecies, and then that I carried out the murders myself? To coin a phrase, yes. But, my dear Hood, you've just admitted that she attacked you tonight. Yes, you suggested the idea. And the three of us, by taunting her with her failure as a prophet earlier on, helped. Her never-too-stable mind snapped, and she attacked me to fulfill her record of prophecies. But why couldn't she have committed the two murders? You overlooked one thing, my friend. You didn't know that under strong emotion, she reverts to her childhood left-handedness. She attacked me tonight with her left hand. The murders were committed by a right-handed person. Want to argue any more? I'd like to know what you think my motive was, Hood. Oh, that's easy. Mrs. Felton, the widow of your second victim, broke down half an hour ago and spilled quite a few beans. She did. I, I mean, yes, she did. So, Cynthia's been talking. Better come with me, Doctor. Very well, Lieutenant. I should prefer not to talk anymore till I've seen my attorney. Good night, gentlemen. I'll see you in court, Barton. You tell the most convincing lies. That story about Mrs. Felton talking, how can you do it? Oh, it takes years of training. My old father always used to say that if you couldn't think of a really convincing truth when you wanted to make a good point, then tell a thumping great lie. <laughs> You're a chip off the old block. Sandy, I'm worried. Conscience bothering you? Mm-mm. I'm thinking about the Derringer Society. What about it, Gregory? Well, Sandy, brood about it. With two of our society murdered and a third headed for the gas chamber... We can certainly use some new members. Greg, that was an exciting story. How do you get mixed up in these things? Harry, I guess I'm just around when they happen. But why is it I'm never around? Well, Harry, maybe you're just the kind of person nothing ever happens to. Lucky you. You mean poor me. I bet if I were a member of the Derringer Society, things would start happening to me. Oh, I don't know. But before you can become a member, you must be able to contribute something to the society. Have you a scientific mind? I'm a genius with a tinker toy. Oh, no, no. Know anything about psychiatry? No. Hypnotism? No. Precognition? Don't even know what it means. Well, in that event, Harry, what in the world could you possibly contribute to the Derringer Society? A case of Petri wine? I should have known. They'll love me, Greg, because Petri wine is such good wine. Why, it's just got to be. With the Petri family, the growing of perfect sun-ripened grapes, and the art of turning those grapes into fragrant, delicious wine, is a heritage. It's a heritage passed on down from father to son, from father to son. No wonder Petri wine is so good. Yes, the making of Petri wine is a family affair, and the Petri family has every intention of keeping it just that. So you know the name Petri on a bottle of wine is more than a trademark. It's the personal assurance of the Petri family that Petri wine is and always will be good wine. 
Well, Gregory, which adventure out of the case book are you planning to tell us next week? Next Monday, Harry, I'm going to tell of a weird adventure that Sandy and I had in Mexico City some months ago. During the course of the story, I succeeded in getting myself kidnapped by a female sharpshooter and nearly ended up with an extremely beautiful wife. I'll see you next Monday, Harry. The Casebook of Gregory Hood is written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher. Original music composed and played by Dean Fossler. Gail Gordon plays the part of Gregory Hood, and Sanderson Taylor is played by Carl Harbert. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. The Casebook of Gregory Hood comes to you from our Hollywood studio. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. For a solid hour of exciting mystery dramas, listen every Monday on most of these same stations at 8 o'clock to Michael Shane, followed immediately by The Casebook of Gregory Hood. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Ladies and gentlemen, the secret word tonight is water. W-A-T-E-R. Really? You bet your life! The DeSoto Plymouth Dealers of America present Groucho Marx in You Bet Your Life, the comedy quiz series produced and transcribed from Hollywood. And here he is, the one, the only... Groucho! I thought he went with a wild goose goes. Oh, that's me, Groucho Marx! Thank you. Well, here I am again with $1,000 for one of our couples tonight. George Fenneman, who's first? A couple of Irish people selected from our studio audience just before we went on the air. It's our way of noticing St. Patrick's Day, Groucho, and here they are, Miss Beth O'Haggerty and Mr. John Daniger. Meet Groucho Marx. Welcome, folks, for the DeSoto Plymouth Dealers. And if one of you says the secret word, he wins $100 in cash instantly. It's a common word, something you use every day. Mr., uh, uh, Dan, uh how do you pronounce it? Danaher. Danaher. Yes. What do you got that G in there? Just a fool, people? <laughs> that's, a, that's a real Irish name, huh? Real Irish. You bet your life. It's a real Irish name. And we got a plug for the show, too. <laughs> Where are you from, uh, Paddy, me lad? I'm from Roscommon, on the banks of the Shannon, in the west part of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds pretty authentic, huh? <laughs> how, how long since you, since you were in Ireland? Forty-two years. And after all these years, you still have a touch of the old sod? You betcha. <laughs> yes, sir. Have you tried Felsnapter and a good stiff brush? <laughs> <laughs> Miss o- O'Haggerty, I, at least I can pronounce that, huh? <laughs> Beth O'Haggerty, huh? That's right. Which part of Ireland are you from, uh, Beth? Well, I didn't come from Ireland. And how is it you're Irish? Uh, was one of your ancestors a policeman? Both of, <laughs> <laughs> Both of my grandparents came from Ireland. Oh, I see. Then you're Irish twice removed. Uh, <laughs> I've been twice removed from Ireland myself. <laughs> well, if you're not from Ireland, where, where are you from, Miss O'Haggerty? I'm from Los Angeles. 
Well, you're a fine-looking lass. Thank you. Why is it you're not married, Beth? Beautiful girl like you. Oh, I just never found anyone who... Any man that was strong enough to take me away from my job, my career. What are you, a wrestler? What is this tenacious job that you stick to, uh, like adhesive tape, huh? Well, it, at present, it's uh, a secretary in the tax and insurance department at Paramount. Yeah, I was there a couple weeks ago. I did How'd a scene in Bing Crosby's picture, Mr. Music. You didn't see me tripping the light fantastic thing. Well, my job doesn't have much contact with the talent. Well, mine doesn't either. But, <laughs> but nevertheless, I'm in that picture. How, how old are you, Mr. Doniger? Sixty years. Sixty? Well, you don't look at him. You're a fine broth of a boy. <laughs> and when I say broth, I don't mean Irish stew, huh? <laughs> well, you're a little old here for Beth, aren't you? Huh? I think so. I really think I am. But besides, I'm married. Well, then it's not very important, huh? <laughs> How did you meet your spouse, uh, Johnny? Well, it's, it's well, about... That was more to it than that, I hope. <laughs> about 45 years ago. It was in a small town in the west of Ireland, and she was out on the street chasing a chicken. And you were doing the same thing, huh? I don't know anyone. I caught the chicken, and I took the chicken back, and I put it in the, in the hen house at the back of her house. And then I went back the next night and made my acquaintance, and, well, that's all. I'm married to her now anyway. What happened to the chicken? <laughs> I don't know. I never made any inquiries. <laughs> Patty, do you, do you speak Gaelic? A little bit, not much. Well, could you give us a few words? Well, Kay will to Tama Gamai. Kay will to Hain. Gamai. Garima Haikut. Tasuro Gagan. Can take a mere to. What does that mean, eh? Well, it means, uh, good evening. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? Where is your chicken tonight? I hope tonight, I'll see huh? you again. <laughs> could, could you tell me a joke in Gaelic? No, I couldn't. I, I really couldn't tell it. I wouldn't be able to remember that. Now, what I could tell you is a short one in English, if it's any good to you. <laughs> well, well, frankly, we could use a joke about here. <laughs> let's, hear, let's hear the one in English, huh? Well, it, it's Don't make a... the English too good or I won't understand it. <laughs> This, uh, this isn't about the English. It's in the English language. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. It's about Pat that was up on the fourth floor in a building and was on fire. And he shouted to Mike down on the sidewalk, and he says, uh, Mike, I'm going to jump. Catch me. So he jumped, flopped down on the sidewalk, and Mike jumped away from him, and he flopped on the sidewalk and was stretched out. And he says, say, why didn't you catch me? He says, I was waiting to see if you'd bounce. <laughs> Well, Pat, uh, if that joke is any indication, you're a much older man than I thought you were. <laughs> Tell me, Mr. Donay, uh, uh, have you ever seen a, lepre a leprechaun, huh? No, I've never seen a leprechaun. What is a leprechaun? Is it anything like a republican? Uh? No, no, no. They're imaginary people. Well, know. that's a republican, all right. Uh, they're imaginary people these days, too, huh? <laughs> Tell me, uh, uh, how do you usually celebrate St. Patrick's Day, uh, Johnny? Oh, take a couple of nips or something like that. You know? <laughs> Hang around the rest of the day and take it easy. 
Well, what's the real reason you Irish celebrate St. Patrick's Day? Well, because St. Patrick is the patron saint of Ireland, and he, he drove the snakes out of Ireland. And where are they now? Huh? <laughs> and that, what, after a nip or two, I suppose they all came back again. Huh? <laughs> well, after talking to you two, all I can say is a happy St. Patrick's Day to you both. Now, in just one minute, you're going to work together for a chance at $1,000. You bet your life. When you call on any one of the more than 3,000 DeSoto Plymouth dealers, you'll find it's their honest desire to please you, no matter how small the job to be done. The DeSoto Plymouth dealers offer you the benefit of not only the best tools and equipment, not only the factory-trained mechanics, but they also feel it's important to be courteous, to give their customers a square deal. That's their creed, their way of doing business. So no matter where you drive, remember there are DeSoto Plymouth dealers anxious to serve you. And remember, all dealers who sell DeSoto also sell Plymouth. Now let's see if an Irish Carlene and her partner will be the ones who get the chance at the DeSoto Plymouth $1,000 question. Fenneman, bring them up to date on the rules. Each of our three couples has $20. They bet as much of that 20 as they want on each of four questions. The couple that earns the most money gets a chance at the $1,000 question at the end of the show. Our other two couples are in a waiting room off stage, so they don't know what's going on out here. Here we go. Let's see how high I can build you $20. You selected capitals of foreign countries as your category. Is that correct? Okay. Now you have $20. How much are you going to risk? Ten. What is the capital city of Denmark? Oslo. Is that the answer you two agree upon? Do you agree with that, uh, Beth? One answer between you now. Uh, I'm sorry. It's, it's Copenhagen. Now, remember, you're going for $1,000 tonight. How much of the $10 will you bet? Five. What is the capital city of the Netherlands? Netherlands. Don't know. Take a guess, Beth. I can't even think at this point. Well, it's Amsterdam. They now have $5. Now you're down to $5. Now, here's your third question. How much of the five will you try? The five. What is the capital city of Spain? Madrid. Madrid is right. We're on the way now. They have ten dollars. All right, now you got ten dollars. Now here's your last chance to beat the other couples. How much of the ten will you try? Ten. All right. What is the capital city of Portugal? Lisbon. Lisbon is right. And they wind up with the twenty dollars they started with. Thanks and good luck from the DeSoto Plymouth dealers. Now don't go away. You may get a chance at the big question. Groucho, the secret word is still water. Perhaps the next couple will say it. They're a barber, Mr. Arthur Fredman, and a housewife, Mrs. Dorsey Ridgney, selected by our studio audience just before we went on the air. And here they are, folks. Meet Groucho Marx. Welcome to You Bet Your Life. And if one of you says the secret word at any time, he wins $100 in cash instantly. It's a common word, something you use every day. A barber and a housewife, eh? Uh, Mr. Friedman, you're the barber, I presume, huh? That's right. <laughs> Well, there are lady barbers, you know. <laughs> where, where are you from, uh, Mr. Friedman? 1533 Vine Street, side of Horse Barbershop. Is that where you were born? Huh? Minneapolis, Minnesota. The one. I thought perhaps you were born in the third chair as you come in. Huh? <laughs> you were born where? Minneapolis, Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes. The land of 10,000 lakes, and you left all of them, is that it? That's right. Uh, where are you from, Mrs. Uh, Rigney? I'm from Green Acres, Washington. What sort of work does your husband do, uh... Uh, my husband is a disabled veteran, but I'm a truck driver. 
truck? What kind of a truck? Uh, well, now I'm hauling house trailers with the truck. People live in these Oh, things? yes, people live in them. And you pull them across the country while they're living in them? No, I just pull them and, and set them on their lot, and they use that in place of the house, most of them. Oh. Uh, how long have you been a barber, Mr. Friedman? Seventeen years. Seventeen years, huh? You don't look at You're a very young-looking man. Where does your husband get his hair cut, Mrs.? Uh... Well, he doesn't have any steady barber. What, is he stewed? <laughs> <laughs> Do your customers ever ask you uh, what's a good way for a man to save his hair, Mr. Friedman? Yes, they do. Well, what do you tell them? Put it in the cigar box. <laughs> you know, that there's a sister joke to that one you just pronounced over there. It's the one where the fellow writes in and says, How do you avoid falling hair? And the fellow writes back, Step nimbly to one side. <laughs> Incidentally, I know of a hair tonic that'll grow hair in a frying pan. But who wants a hairy frying pan? <laughs> no joke, but then this is a very old frying pan. <laughs> How did you get to be a barber? Did you start out when you were a little shaver? Went to barber college. Huh? I went to barber college. You went to barber college? Yes. What influence has the electric razor had on the barber profession? It cuts down the shaves about 25%. Mm -hmm. And what do you do? Every time there's another razor sold, you raise the price of the shave. Is that it? Do you use electric razor? I use electric razor, yes. Someday I hope to get the chair. <laughs> you know, there's something I've always wanted to know. Where do you get all these old magazines for your customers? We don't have old magazines. Are you buying from dentists? Uh, we don't have <laughs> Or are you in business for yourself, huh? Where do you get them? You don't have old magazines? No. Well, if one of your customers brings in the latest issue of Look Magazine, be sure to see it, will you? There's a flattering piece about me and our show in the current Look Magazine. Maybe it'll help them forget that they just lost your ears in your barbershop. Huh? <laughs> Why is it women don't get bald as often as men, Mr. Friedman? Well, the female is different than the male. Well, that's about as accurate a statement as I've ever heard. <laughs> Nobody is more aware of that than I am, Mr. Friedman. <laughs> well, now, let's see if, if a professional clipper like you and uh, can clip an old cut-up like me for $1,000. Now, you beat the other couples, and you earn the chance at the big question. I can't tell you how much our first couple won, but Fenneman's offstage remind our listeners. The Irish couple won $20. Here we go. Let's see how high you can build you $20. You selected songs about anatomy as your category. Is that right? That's right. Now, you have $20. Here's your first question. How much of the 20 will you try? Ten. What's the name of this song? Okay, Jerry. Well, what do you say, kids? What do you say? I'm if sorry. the smoke gets in your eyes, huh? <laughs> now, remember, you're going for $1,000 tonight. That's the big prize anyway. Now, how much of the $10 will you try? Five. $5? Give me the title of this song. Play, Jerry. Tiptoe through the tulips, through the tulips is right, huh? They now have $15. All right, now you got $15. How much of the 15 will you try? Ten. Okay, here's your third question. Let's see if you can identify this one for 10 bucks.
What do you say, kids? Take a guess. I'm sorry. It's in my arms. You should have known that. They now have five dollars. Here's your last chance to beat the other couples. How much of the five will you try? Five. What's the name of this song? Play. Body and soul. Body and soul is right. And they wind up with ten dollars. Thanks and good luck from the DeSoto Plymouth dealers. Now, in just a minute, our last couple will try for the chance at a thousand dollars. Fenneman, who's ahead? Well, the Irish couple is leading with twenty dollars. And the secret word is still water. Perhaps the next couple will say it. We invited some collectors from the Bureau of Internal Revenue and some Hollywood business managers to the show tonight. And just before we went on the air, our studio audience selected collector William Kenny and manager Maurice Dolman. Gentlemen, meet Groucho Marx. Welcome, gents, to you bet your life. And if one of you says the secret word, he wins $100 in cash instantly. It's a common word, something you use every day. A business manager and an income tax collector, is that right? Uh, Mr. Uh, Kenny? That's right. You're the uh, income tax man, huh? Yes, I am. I recognize you by your short form, huh? <laughs> Well, where are you from, Mr. Kenny? I'm from uh, Miami, Florida. How long have you been an income tax collector? About seven months. How did you happen to go into this nefarious trade? Well, I uh, took the examination in Florida, and I wanted to come to California. Well, you know, you can live in California without being with the Revenue Department, huh? (laughs) Although it's not easy. (laughs) What prompted you to become an income tax man? I mean, what did you do prior to that? I was a bank examiner for the federal government. Do you have a a nickname, uh, Mr. Kenny? Yes. uh, What is it? eh? At school, they call me Frog. Why, did you hop around a lot in those days? Are are you married, Froggy? Yes, I am. And uh, how helpful is marriage from the income tax standpoint? Well, this year... uh, Wife is worth $600. Well, everything's in play to these days. Is that alive, Mr. Kenny? Or... Has to be alive, huh? It, uh, she must be alive at the time of filing. You don't care if they drop dead the following day, huh? How about children? What are, what are they worth? This year, kids are worth $600. Hey, the little ones are worth just as much as the big ones. Huh? Do, you, do you have any children, Mr. Kenny? Not yet. Not yet. Well, then you're out 600 bucks, aren't you? <laughs> By the process of elimination, I, I presume that you're the uh, business manager, Mr. Dolman, huh? I am. Where, where are you from? I'm from New York. What outfit do you do you work for? I'm in business for myself. Oh, you mind your own business, eh? <laughs> Just what do you do in your business? I, mi- I manage the business affairs of other people. Then you don't mind your own business. <laughs> what do you have to know to be a business manager, Mr. Doman? Well, primarily you have to have a good head for business. Is that in addition to the one you carry around now? <laughs> Well, Froggy, let's get back to you, huh? 
You're standing there dreaming of somebody you're going to soak tomorrow, huh? <laughs> Specifically, what is your job with the Income Tax Department or the Bureau of Internal Revenue? Well, we... Pretty fancy name for a crooked outfit, huh? <laughs> out and track down delinquent taxpayers and... Suppose a fellow owes you $7,000 and he has no money. What do you do now? If he's got the money, we'll collect it. If he doesn't... If he hasn't got it, you can't throw him in the can for that, though, huh? If he hasn't got it, no, and he hasn't prepared a fraudulent return. No. But we don't uh, put him in jail if they just don't have the money to pay the taxes. Mm. That's a good thing to know, no? (laughs) (laughs) Now, what, what are some of the things we should know about income taxes? For example, should a married man file a joint return or a single return? This year, it would uh, be to his advantage to file a joint return with his wife, and that way he could take advantage of the split income provision. When do I get my split? <laughs> What's a joint return? Is that a nightclub with a money-back guarantee? <laughs> the joint return is where a husband and wife file one return together and pool their income and prepare one tax return. Now, in filing a joint return, how much am I allowed as a deduction for myself? This year, you would be allowed $600 as uh, head of the house. That's just fantasy on your part, you know. (laughs) I'm no more the head of the house than you are a frog, Mr. (laughs) King. How about Mr. Dolman over here? Does he get another 600 off because of his extra head for business? <laughs> now, what is the difference, Froggy, but, uh, between the short form and the long form? Well, the short form, the 1040A, you can That gets claim... in at 11 o'clock, huh? He <laughs> <laughs> can uh, claim or... That is, on the short form, you can claim only 10% deductions of your uh, gross income. you carefully examine every form that comes into your office, Mr. Kenny? No, we don't go over every form. We um, just uh, look at the above-the-average forms. That is, we... <laughs> You mean the ordinary form you don't pay any attention to? It? Well, would you like me to come down and just look at the average form for you? I'm not as calloused as you are, you know. Why don't you examine uh, every form? Well, we just don't have the personnel to go over every form that goes in the office. But uh, in, in regards to that, I, I want to add that we do pay particular attention to the Farms that go into big figures. Mm. Uh, this, could, this could get out of hand, you know. But... <laughs> you must have an army of bookkeepers to go over all those forms. How long does it take you? Well, it doesn't take long. We have a uh, huge machine that is really a mechanical brain. You have a mechanical brain? <laughs> and Mr. Dolman has two heads? Over here? <laughs> I'm the only one around here with a single-track mind. <laughs> I'm still thinking of those average forms. <laughs> now, if you were my business manager, Mr. Dolman, how could you save me money on income taxes? Well, <clears throat> I... Oh, brother, are you on a spot now? <laughs> 
I can see the handcuffs sticking out of his back pocket. Huh? I'll bring you an apple pie with a saw in it in the morning. Well, what we do is keep proper record of your deductions. Uh-huh. You know... You know uh, in your business, you listen to the radio. You have to to listen to other comedy programs that we can take depreciation on your radio. You have to listen to other programs? <laughs> I'd rather lose my deduction and not have to listen. Huh? <laughs> now, uh, suppose I was thinking of hiring you to help me take care of my business affairs, Mr. Dolman. I haven't any, but just pretend. Huh? What would you want to know about me? Well, first, I'd want to know if you were honest. If I were honest, I wouldn't need your help, Mr. Dolman. <laughs> well, between the two of you, you succeeded in confusing all three of us. Now, you're going to try for a chance at $1,000. You beat the other two couples, and that's all you have to do. You're pretty smart fellows. I can't tell you how much they won, but Fenneman's going to remind our listeners. The Irish couple is ahead with $20. Here we go. Let's see how high you can build your $20. You selected instruments played by orchestra leaders as your category. Now, here's your first question. You have $20. How much will you try? We'll try for 10 Okay. What instrument does Harry James play? Trumpet. Trumpet is right. Off to a good start. They have $30. I want to, I want to warn you of one thing, boys. You know, if you win any money here tonight, you've got to put it on your tax. <laughs> Remember, you're going for $1,000 tonight. Now, how much of the 30 will you try? 20 What instrument does Gene Krupa play? Drums. The drums is right. Huh? They're climbing now. They have $50. All right, you got $50. Here's your third question. How much of the 50 40 What instrument does Tommy Dorsey play? Trombone. Trombone is right. They're way up there now. They have $90. Well, you slid right into that one with the trombone. Now, you got $90. Here's your last chance to beat the other couples. How much will you bet? Shoot the Shoot works. The works. What instrument does Carmen Cavallero play? Piano. piano. The piano is right. And they wind up with $180. And that means the tax man and the business manager get the chance at the DeSoto Plymouth $1,000 question. do you expect of the folks who service your car? Efficient service? Courteous service? Service at a fair price? Well, you get them all when you visit one of the more than 3,000 DeSoto Plymouth dealers. You'll find they're not only ready and willing, but able to give your car the very best in service. And that goes for the major repair jobs as well as the simpler ones. DeSoto Plymouth dealers have factory-trained mechanics who know cars inside and out, no matter what make or what year it happens to be. And in the hands of these expert mechanics are the most modern tools and equipment made. Yes, that's the kind of top service you can count on when you drive your car in at the sign of any authorized DeSoto Plymouth dealer. And here is the tax man and the business manager, the winning couple, all ready for the DeSoto Plymouth $1,000 question, Groucho. Here we go for $1,000. Ready? I'll give you 15 seconds to decide on a single answer between you and think carefully. And please, no help from the audience. Here it is. In 1777, the American army defeated the British under General Burgoyne in what has become one of the truly decisive battles of world history. 
The American victory marked the turning of the tide of independence. What is the name of this battle? Okay, now what is the answer you two have decided upon and talk right up into the microphone? Battle of Yorktown. No, no, I'm sorry. It's the battle it's the Battle of Saratoga. Yeah. Huh? I'm sorry, that's the correct answer. So that means the big question next week will be worth fifteen hundred dollars. <laughs> well, you lost the big money, but you won how much? Two hundred hundred and eighty dollars in cash? Congratulations and thanks to both of you. You Bet Your Life is a John Goodell production. Transcribed from Hollywood, directed by Bob Guan and Bernie Smith. Music by Jerry Fielding. Be sure to tune in again next Wednesday night at this time for the Groucho Marx Show, You Bet Your Life. Presented by the more than 3,000 DeSoto Plymouth dealers of America. And remember, all dealers who sell DeSoto also sell Plymouth. Two great cars, both products of the Chrysler Corporation. And don't forget, next week the big question will be worth $1,500. Well, it's almost time for Bing Crosby, so good night, folks, and remember, just be sure to see your DeSoto Plymouth dealer. Folks, here's a reminder. Meeting human needs is the objective of all Red Cross services. Respond willingly to the 1950 Red Cross Fund campaign. Remember, you're not giving to, but through the Red Cross. This is George Fenneman signing off with the more than 3,000 DeSoto Plymouth dealers from coast to coast.